A Mormon Stories is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. To support this podcast, please donate today at gaymormonstories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. And thanks for listening. I think they'll also come around further if if that's where your life takes you. I think, yeah, it might be an adjustment when the it involves uh, you in a relationship if that's what life brings you. But they're gonna they're gonna see that they're gonna I, see that. And your mother obviously has shown that she's willing to see you and to see what you're doing. And, absolutely, and I think just seeing one of the biggest things is that when dogma clashes with reality in a positive way. You know, so for me, for example, you know, my, my mom asked me, you know, well, what are we teaching our children then? Because I have a cousin who also came out, as it were, though for her, it was a much more organic process, I guess. And uh, and I said, well, actually, <laughs> because I'm I'm working with this lady um, in the process of co-founding a homeless use host program, which we can talk about later. But, you know, I said, I just met the most delightful family you know, where which happens to be composed of two mothers and four children. They're all adolescents and the most curious, polite, um, inquisitive, kind children that you have you would ever imagine meeting. In fact, I told the youngest one who is eleven and is just such a delightsome young person. I want to clone you. I want like I want all of my children to be like you, you know? And that so that was for me number 1. It showed me the possibility of creating a very beautiful, very good family life with very resilient and wonderful children, but I was able to share that then, you know, uh, and say um actually like I've seen the following and it was an absolutely wonderful thing and it was especially good for me to see the possibility of the such, you know, for myself. Yeah, the role models are so important. Uh, absolutely. And um, bec- and in particular, I think in showing, uh, because, you know, Carolyn Pearson has said, you, you can't throw people to the gutter and not expect them to get dirty, right? And there are coping mechanisms or behaviors that some, it's whether it's students at BYU or just LDS, LGBT people in general, will adopt during the process if they are faced with a great deal of rejection that are not life-affirming, whether it ends up being, you know, uh, suicide ideation or attempts to take one's life, a substance abuse, unsafe sexual practices or whatever. The San, San Francisco State University has, through Dr. Caitlin Ryan has done a very wonderful thing in that they have studied for several years the correlation between whether a child will adopt life-affirming behaviors or destructive ones based on how they are accepted by their family, the community at, at large as well, but primarily how the family reacts to a child who is LGBT, you know? Right. And it's part of what's called the Family Acceptance Project, and it makes complete sense to me. And so for me, having a family that is as inherently loving as they are insofar as they are able, being surrounded by a support community of people who are navigating the the intersection of their faith and their struggles, be they 
through heterodoxy, through their struggles with patriarchy or homosexuality or other things, other cultural aspects of the faith, as it were, that that are living healthy lives. And then also seeing that, for example, a family, this wonderful, beautiful family and these amazing kids, when you see that, that has a great deal of power because by nature we are template thinkers, right? We are right. checklist thinkers and we think, if I am A, then this is what and what it means to be A, you know? Yeah, and, and gay people assume if we have a same-sex relationship, we can't have a family. And that's so false. It, it really is. Or, you know, that if you do, then there you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater insofar as your faith tradition is concerned. And what I have found is that both the LGBT and LDS communities will have individuals within them deeply opinionated and who both should know better because both have a history of persecution about what you can and cannot be, what you... You know what I'm saying? And so what I have found is that, at least for me, I just have to listen closely to what resonates with me, retain that or adopt or integrate that and discard the rest, be it from the LGBT community or the LDS community, and insist stubbornly on being the writer of my own narrative, you know? Right. And so, which which for me, again, that being told to trust myself was one of the best things that anyone ever did for me, one of my close friends. And... And because of that, and in so doing, I've been able to carve out for myself a, a life that I feel is deeply affirming and sustainable and not, you know, in the throes, the depressive throes of celibacy or secrecy or closetedness, nor in the inauthenticity, the potential inauthenticity of participating in dishonest relationships where you are not as, as invested or able to be as present as the other person, right? Um, right. And so... It, Again, for me, you know, I, people are surprised. Oh, you know, this happened in the spring and all, to see me as involved as I am in the community and as, as, as I feel, like as affirming or empowered as I feel. And, and so many people come to me now, you know, <laughs> as a potential safe space or like, what should I do with this? Or like, thank you for yeah. doing X, Y, and Z. But the fact is that I had so many wonderful elements, influences in my life. And, and it was a long journey previous to that, you know? And well, you were in a cocoon, but you had to have the ingredients in that cocoon to become the butterfly. And you came out full flight from that cocoon. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's one way of putting it. Sure, I never even thought of that. But basically an incubation, as it were, and then able to sort of leave behind the corpse of that past self wrestling with, in one, on one sense, self-hatred, um, in another sense, not able to see a way forward. It was these very difficult 15 years, and then within that scope, the three years of a great deal of sorrow, of walking through the valley of the shadow in a way I never had before. In part of the process of figuring things out for myself, I had to do a soul check, a vivisection, as it were. And I say vivisection and night dissection on purpose because the subject is alive <laughs> during a vivisection and you're able to feel everything that's happening, let's say if there isn't a localized anesthetic, if you will, and just really look at and say, okay, what what is a part of who I am? What is inherently something that 
resonates with who I am from my faith tradition and what are things that are not. And what are things from, you know, that I have both phenomena, characteristics or behaviors, just as with Mormonism, uh, within the LGBT community that resonate with who I am and things that don't. What am I going to keep and what am I going to discard or reject, you know? And I ended up writing this. Another thing that was somewhat helpful, but at that time I had already largely come to that point of reconciliation, was uh, participating in a spirituality and sexuality and empowerment workshop at the Salt Lake Pride Center that was with some friends um, that was the course was written by Dr. Lee Beckstead, I believe from the University of Utah. And just to ask those same questions, you know, and, and out of that, I ended up writing a really long personal code of ethics <laughs> and of characteristics and attributes that I want to embody and that I also want to have in a companion. And so while it was a, a lengthy process in some ways, and in some ways it was a southern a sudden burst or a rebirth of myself. It has been a very deliberate one. And I'm really grateful for it and and hope that in some way or in some respect, my story is helpful to others. But I think as soon as we're able to own who we are and understand that, that in and of itself is so deeply empowering that for me, it led to all kinds of things. It became... My, I went back to school. I am now in the process of co-founding an LGBT homeless youth host home program. I'm also part of the steering committee for Mormons Building Bridges and helping to improve and expand the conversation there, along with other things that I'm doing. Like I try to help with USGA wherever I can, um, sing with the One Voice Choir, which is for... LGBT persons and allies from the LDS faith tradition, though those are the majority of participants, but anyone is welcome. Helping with the Far Between project occasionally, insofar as editing videos or contributing to the blog. So things of that of that nature. And I, I wouldn't be doing all of these this multiplicity of things. I mean, at this point, I've already started doing interviews with the media and participating in and organizing panels for Ogden Outreach as well. And and other things that I, w I would not have been doing if I hadn't found my voice. And for me, finding my voice and my power came after understanding that I was a good person as I was and learning how to love and accept myself, take from my faith tradition the things that resonate with me, and then doing the work of transformation within the tribe. I think for some, it's necessary to walk away completely for their own well-being, and that should be respected as well. For me, it just so happens that I'm in a place of wellness. I feel so personally secure enough in who I am that I can go and sit in the pews and befriend people and have conversations about that hopefully help to increase the compassion and and love towards their LGBT brothers and sisters and so on. And and I've had some great experiences with that. I mean, I called one day, I called my Relief Society president and came out to her and invited her to a Pro Peace Forum panel simultaneously. And she came and was super happy and grateful wow. and super enthusiastic, more so than my mom who also went. Yeah. Well, let me just comment about this phenomenon that, that I want to just point out that your life, yes, you had some amazingly difficult things that you had to work through. 
but I think the maybe the fortunate thing was that only not quite as much of it came from being a Mormon as maybe some of other gay people who've really suffered with Mormonism. And I'm really glad that you are someone who can don't have to look at the Mormon church with anger and bitterness that keeps you from being the activist that you are. And you're, you're really able to take on this role now of someone who can deal with church and deal with active members and deal sort of within the organization in a productive way because you were maybe part of this first generation that wasn't damaged quite so much, or at least uh, there's still plenty who are. You know, but there's now we're getting some individuals like you. Sure, I'm absolutely. Really excited I mean, like you were, uh, are coming out. Right. Like I have a circle of, a personal circle of friends that I can point to who are doing similar work and who are not, as you say, um, who have not been deeply wounded yeah. in the house of their friends, if you will. But that sadly exactly. is still happening. So the church released mormonsandgays.org as a website, right? And while there are many things which, uh, remain to problematize or deconstruct, if you will. The one thing that is unequivocal, among others, is number one, saying for the first time from an authoritative source, right. being gay is not a choice. And then the second one is saying family members should not be excluded or ostracized, regardless of their choices and regardless of whether or not they are gay and and you know have a same sex partner and so on and because and this was released a couple of weeks ago within the context in which we're speaking that now gives me ammo isn't the right word because it's it's more it's it has an antagonistic but it gets you support behind definition your... to it it gives me yes it gives me an authoritative source of support by which I can tell parents, for example, now that I'm working with LDS LGBT youth, saying, actually, this is what we're, what we're being told from an authoritative source. And what you're doing right now, whether it's like by threatening to kick out a child or actually doing so, or, or telling, using the vernacular of saying, you know, going to go to hell, and so on. It gives me something that I can point to and say, actually, this is not what we're being counseled to do. And we can do better. And with your child, you can do better in the following ways. Approaching it always, of course, I think with with empathy and with diplomacy and all of those things. But uh, in a way, hopefully that will be amenable to and begin to prevent some of these broken families that I'm now dealing with in my advocacy work, as it were. Because while there is improvements, there are things that are changing and happening, and a generation of young people that are not receiving the wounds and traumas of the older generation. At least more people. Um, that's still, still happening. happening to, as bad as ever yeah. for plenty of people. But, but yeah, the hope is that now there's some who aren't, who aren't suffering that and Right. My bishop, for example, was an example of that. I mean, he's, I think, pretty orthodox in his views, but in our meetings together, I, which I initiated because I wanted to have input and also develop just a relationship by which I could articulate not just my views, but my experiences and so on. He always thanked me for articulating my views and always respected them without ever trying to impose anything you know, that I wasn't comfortable with. That's one example. Another one is my Relief Society president, again, who not only has established 
a spirit of just of love within the context of that little Relief Society group of sisters of women, but also who, again, came to me, came with me to this panel and we laughed together and we talked and she was just so enthusiastic and supportive and kind and good, you know, and more so again than my mom. Well, she has permission now. I mean, she must have felt the permission already because this was before that. But now even more people are going to have the permission to take that attitude that they have. So I hope that that is one of the good outcomes of the websites. Yes, yes, absolutely. But this was even before then, you know, before the site was released, which is wonderful. And and so I've I've been really fortunate in that respect, you know, that, that I've had, again, really good experiences, sources of support and within inside within the context and outside of the context of mormonism and the reason that it's important for me personally and i'm able to participate within the church context my cosmology certainly does not embrace the universalism of of mormonism among other things um but i do feel like it's one global tribe with a role to play and within that context i feel that as long as LGBT children will continue to be born into LDS homes, and that will never cease to be so, for it is a genetic and, bio- and biological reality. So as long as that continues to happen, it's really important for change to occur from the inside out as much as from the outside in. You know, we can pursue all the legislative change, and that is important. That is one piece of the puzzle of achieving equality and so on. And I participate in, you know, political things of that nature and variety as well, which I feel are important. But if if the change is only external, then there will be an, another generation of children who will be confronted with the disrepair of families who have no idea no idea, no toolkit and by which to say we can embrace and love you. Another really cool thing is that I'm meeting more and more LDS parents who are feeling that they don't have to choose between their child and their faith and who are able to fully support and love them as they are. In other words, not say not not love in a pitying way of saying you should probably go to reparative therapy or this is an affliction that you have. But rather, this is a this is a gift, and we love you, and just you know, be the same as any of our other children. Insofar as you know, obey the law of chastity. No sexy business before marriage. Obey the law of wisdom. Don't get plastered. You know, <laughs> but you know. Right, and that's what gay gay people need that so bad. They need to maintain some sort of moral compass, even if they leave the church, or even if they they the destructive behavior comes from not having a connection anymore to the moral compass that one was raised with and the substance abuse leads to so much destruction in people's lives and the that leads to so much of the unsafe sex and well well think about it i mean you know mormonism is uh as with many other foundational sources of identity or demographics that we can point to you know whether it's gender the country within which you are born the cultural context in which you operate it's a it becomes a part of your it is a part of your consciousness and DNA. So if you completely amputate that, and for some people have to, but it requires a great deal of emotional resiliency and moral imagination to reconstruct for yourself a cosmology or at least a code of ethics by which you can live without having a complete right. loss of bearings and then deciding 
that, you know, you have to participate in X, Y, and Z because that's what it means to be gay, you know? And age 16 is not the age to be forced to do that, you know, or even 18 or even 20, you know? Uh, yeah, at the tender age of, say, 14, suddenly no longer have, not just being rejected by your family or, or your community uh, of, of faith, but also finding yourself without a roof all of a sudden and... I think parents, most parents don't really realize what happens when they throw their children out and which ends up being, ter first of all, if they survive, you know, things like having to exchange sex for food, being taken advantage of in the most horrific and terrible ways by predatory individuals on the streets, as well as, you know, who will offer like shelter, say, in exchange for sex. Or one kid that I was speaking to who was saying, basically, I slept for the better part of a year in the back of a bed rug, bed bug infested uh, truck bed, you know, uh, and, f and froze to death half of the year or close to it. And so I, I don't know if this would be a natural segue into some of the work that I'm doing within that scope. You tell me. <laughs> well, let's do this. I think we should spend the most time talking about that particular project, but can you just give me a brief rundown of just a description, once again, of the different programs that organizations that you're involved with. Just tell me in one minute about Far Between, about Mormons Building Bridges, about USGA, about Project Peace, and then we'll move on to the one you're most involved in right now that is the one that really we need to have a compelling conversation about, which is the homeless LGBT youth in Utah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I'll go in, in order of involvement okay. <laughs> other than this particular program. So I would say probably after Safe and Sound, the homeless program, USGA, as far as just participating in the organizational meetings. So let's just, just tell the listener basically in one sentence what is USGA. And so USGA is an acronym for Understanding Same Gender Attraction. Uh, which is the name of the organization that is basically the LGBT club on campus. It at BYU. At BYU, yes. It is, so seven years ago, BYU amended its honor code to to the allow that somebody could be openly gay and not have their academic standing um, compromised. As long as they're not having any homosexual activity. Precisely. And then now uh, about six years, five years later, five and a half years later, um, it unofficially allowed, began to allow this group to meet on campus. And it, you know, started out as like 11, 10 people every week to over 80 attending every Thursday, you know, which is a pretty beautiful and amazing thing. I haven't, you know, filled any kind of leadership position at all, but have participated within it. And it's been really important for me to support them because, I, it's it's a it's it's a safe and loving space for many who are still in crisis mm -hmm. and who are trying to navigate that very tenuous space between their faith and their sexuality. And so, so basically, uh, with that, I've you know again just attended organizational meetings, provided suggestions, helped to organize a, a panel. I'm hoping to do the same next semester and. Yeah, it's just it's just a really beautiful group of people, and I'm really grateful that it exists within the scope yeah, of what it's able to do, right? What a change that wasn't there when I was at BYU. Uh, to say the least, yeah. you know. 
it's going to be moving off campus, I think, so that because it's just it's evolved so much that it's kind of difficult, I think, to be as inclusive as USJ desires to be what, within the scope, the very limiting scope of what BYU wants. And but there is a possibility that another LGBT organization may come into play um, to maintain a presence on campus. But still, you know, that USGA will always continue to be an important piece of the puzzle as far as providing a safe space within which these LDS LGBT kids, students can navigate this very difficult path and not hopefully stay away from those destructive behaviors that you and I have alluded to or discussed or spoken about. And are, the, are the students who participate in that, are they mostly lesbian and gay students or are there a lot of straight allies or a lot of people who are coming to be informed or to, to support? Is it an alliance of... Um, yeah, so the president, Bridie Jensen, is a, is a statistics student and she actually like did a, like a stats thing. <laughs> so I can give you the demographics, which are <laughs> about, by and large, it's mostly gay gentlemen, gay guys. And then there's, after that, lesbians, a couple of transgendered individuals, and some allies. But it's, you know, it's for anyone who desires to attend, who is part of the BYU community. Although now that they will be meeting off campus um, in the Provo Library, probably there will be more community members attending as well. More non-BYU students. Because, you know, it has primarily been um, to serve the BYU community and students. I honestly don't know what that will look like, but I think it will continue to be a very important and beautiful uh, organization. So there's that. Um, There's also Far Between. So over the summer, I was able to help um, edit and put together uh, some of the video interviews that are on the website now, farbetweenmovie.com that I know have been very helpful to many people just in terms of knowing, number one, that they're not alone. Number two, that there's just such a great multiplicity uh, and nuanced and variegated ways in which Mormons or in which um, LGBT individuals from the LDS faith tradition are navigating the two. I know uh, of USGA kids who have pointed to these videos for their family members to try and help them to become more educated about the issues. Um, So with Far Between, I've done some of that and I'm hoping to pick up on that as well again. Yeah, we, um, we're actually kind of trying to do a similar thing here at Gay Mormon Stories in a different way, which is to give a way for people to see in a different format, different kinds of people's stories. And so we, we feel kind of um, close to Far Between in a way because we, we don't have the same project and both of them are needed, but we both have the same goal, which is really to to let the stories come out and let people see some real live breathing um, gay people and lesbian people and so forth who have sort of gotten past some of the pain. Yes, absolutely. And, and again, you know, like you were saying, role models are so important that just, you know, whether or not somebody has been able to achieve wellness, just even knowing, again, just even knowing that you're not alone in that process and that there are many who will stand with you is super important, you know, and providing a voice for a variegation of stories and not just those that fit the template of of a, a lifetime of solitude and celibacy, which if somebody chooses that, they 
you know, it's their prerogative and that should be respected or in a mixed orientation marriage, you know, but who feel that they're can find like other forms of living authentically that are more, more in keeping with whatever the individual feels or wants for themselves. You know what I mean? Um, and, and that's really important because those stories don't necessarily have not been out there nearly enough. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for this. And this is just part of, part of a broader campaign Kendall has going. And it sounds like he's doing quite a number of actions, especially in Utah County um, with his empathy first project, which is um, a nice model for a way of increasing dialogue and increasing. And as he pointed out, he was, his empathy first project was part of this project peace, right? The, the, yeah. The, the Provo peace forum. Yes. The Provo so. peace forum operates under the, under that umbrella as well. Um, and okay. So that's, that's interesting to hear that you're involved in a, or a, some of these different elements of the empathy first project impacted. They, you. Well, they, yeah, they made a, a big difference to me and, and uh, hopefully we'll continue in, in all of their uh, different ways. And uh, actually, I forgot to mention, um, I'm more involved than any of the others that I have mentioned, Far Between or or USGA or anything like that, um, is the Mormons Building Bridges. So essentially, Mormons Building Bridges is a place for, more, I would say, more Orthodox Mormons to come to the table along with their LGBT brothers and sisters and have conversations without necessarily having to be scared that they're going to be attacked or so basically a, a place where you for people who maybe are not necessarily certain that where they stand or that they can support, let's say something like marriage equality, but want to learn about the LDS LGBT experience, want to try and understand a little bit better and maybe do a little bit better insofar as treating or dealing with their loved ones who are LGBT. It's definitely not an echo chamber for the converted uh, insofar as, um, but it's more of just, again, a place where people can come and ask questions, even if it, you know, they're the most basic and simplistic and not, not be shot down, uh, whether it's, I, how can, what does transgender mean? Or, you know, I, how can I make this LGBT family welcome in my ward? I don't know what that means or how, how I can do that or be sensitive to their needs. And then, and then broader conversations about things like reparative therapy, both its, its merits for some people as well as whether there are things to question within its practices, right? And, uh, and, uh, and a variety of voices are allowed to, to come to the fore, including those that are more orthodox, but also ensuring that any who want to share lived experiences that have been less than positive are able to do so, um, so that we as a community can see that we can do, we need to do a much better job of practicing what it means to be a disciple of Christ insofar as not just mourning with those that mourn, but um, Christ spent his time, a great deal of his time, if not most of it, with the outcast, the forgotten, and the disenfranchised. And so rather than being scared by this thing called gay or antagonistic towards such persons, being embracing and loving towards their LGBT brothers and sisters, you know? And that's the step we need now. That's what we need the most sure. now. And, and, and I, I, obviously I know about Mormon Billy Bridges, and I, 
for a while, I think it um, bothered me that they weren't willing to come out in favor of marriage equality. And I came to realize that it's not that the individuals in Mormon village bridges aren't in favor or necessarily of more marriage equality, but it's that the point of the organization is to be a place where the believing Mormon or the Orthodox Mormon, or even the one who's just trying to educate himself, can find a space to become an ally. And then they might go on and become more allied, or they might not, but the point is, is it can be a place where we can make these other changes that really need to happen, which really affects most our young people. Absolutely, which is, so... Which is the empathy first, like what Kendall's doing, which is to not throw out your teens that you're having trouble with, which is what you're trying to deal with with these homeless teenagers. So... I, that's why I eventually got convinced of the strategy of Mormon building bridges of of really keeping it less political. It's more apolitical and adoctrinal. It's less of that and more of just share your lived experiences and ask your questions, you know. And what, I've had some very moving experiences therein. And just one example, I, I posted a video because – my passion, if you don't already know by now, is helping to minimize the casualties among LDS LGBT young persons and LGBT per- young persons in general. Um, so I posted an interview with a mom, a really wonderful lady who, you know, basically talked about a video interview where she talks about, you know, I had I had a gay brother, I have a gay son, I love him, and I love the gospel, and I, you know, I support him and 100% and so on. And this mom of a, a transgender boy got on there and said, thank you so much for posting this. I had no idea that there were other people in the church who, other parents who honestly feel that that they can, you know, fully love and support their child, that the church as an institution perhaps is not yet at a place where it can create a fully affirming environment for LGBT persons, but that I can see that and I can practice that on behalf of my child. And uh, on it, this mom honestly felt like she was completely alone in thinking and feeling that, you know, and it was really wonderful for me to be able to say, no, absolutely you're not. And furthermore, I know another mother of a transgender son who is really wonderful and supportive as you have expressed. And if you ever desire support, you know, please let me know and so on. You know what I mean? And so it's, it's been a, a really good experience in that respect. And it's for me also fun to have the opportunity to get on, of course, again, coming from the place that I come from and just say, I would like to just say I'm, you know, an LGBT person, one of your brothers and sisters. And if you have any questions that you're embarrassed to ask or are worried about or or whatever, I offer myself private message me and I will, you know, I will I promise you will not receive any kind of attack from me or anything like that. I will listen and try to answer any of your questions or concerns in the best way that I can, you know. And so, and there are other like LGBT persons on that, on there trying to do that as well. And so, yeah, that, that's probably after safe and sound, the biggest thing, aside from just being a participant in USGA, in, in the one voice choir and in, and, and helping to occasionally to edit videos and contribute to the far between blog. Okay. Well, let's move on then to the, the emergency, which is the problem these, of these lesbian and gay teens. Okay, so nationally, right, 30% of LGBT young people are 
or, or I'm sorry, 30% of homeless young people are LGBT. Now, that's a really high and disproportionate rate when we consider that 7% to 10% of the population is LGBT, depending on the study which you follow and so on. Or 5%. Yes, yeah, so we're talking about 10 It's eight times higher than it should Precisely. be. Precisely. It's a very disproportionately high rate. A nation of throwaway children that are thrown out of their homes or who simply leave because their home environment suddenly becomes abusive or antagonistic towards them upon coming out. However, in the state of Utah, that number goes up to 42%. Marianne Edmonds, who is the founder and executive director of Ogden Outreach and has been doing her work in ministry for over a decade in the state, you know, I, I asked her anecdotally because we, we want to eventually commission a, story, a study with cold, hard numbers. But I told her, can you tell me, like, of these home, newly homeless kids who come to your doorstep, how many of them would you say come from LDS homes? And she says, oh, probably well over 96 percent, you know. And wow. yeah, it's, which is a very sobering and, and sorrowful thing. Um, and the percentage of Mormons in Utah is only... 60%, right? I mean, it's... Right. And so it's, again, a disproportionately high number of children from Mormon homes that are thrown out upon coming out or being discovered to be LGBT. I have one kid recently who her dad <laughs> hacked her Facebook account. And when he saw that she was participating in affirmation to try and get support, like saying, I feel really alone in this, you know, I'm... I'm gay and I don't know what to do and so on. Um, he printed copies of all of that, sent them to her fa family members, so like deeply invasive, number one, and then said, you can no longer live under my roof, you know? <laughs> and fortunately, this one has a potentially positive ending in that she was able to go live with her grandmother. And this is like just in the past week. But many of these children are completely disowned by their family both their immediate nuclear family and their family at large, not to mention their faith community. So where another, let's say, a family in the ward could say, come, stay with me, you have a home and a roof over your head, nothing is done, you know? And so... And this part, this just, the thought of this just is deeply sad. You know, when you think of someone not only trying to survive in that scenario, but also the intense rejection that they... You know, a teenager absolutely needs to know that they have a family that loves and supports them. And if you're 14 years old and all of a sudden you don't have anybody in your life who loves and supports you, it has been withdrawn from you. Mm -hmm. That is just such a damaging, you know, terrible thing to have to carry. And so I just, you know, just thinking absolutely. about that makes me so sad. Not... In addition to the troubles after the struggles, just even that psychological piece of it is just deeply well, sad. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. If, if let's say, for somebody from a conservative faith tradition to become self-aware, right, and, and to the extent that it can lead to depression, anxiety, as closetedness will do, suicide ideation for an adult, what, what does that do for somebody who is developmentally, cognitively, in the space of an adolescent mind and heart. And then on top of that, like you say, to have absolutely no one and no place to go. And unfortunately, sadly, in the state of Utah, there are more resources for homeless adults insofar as both shelters, reintegration programs, 
than there are for homeless youth for whom none of those things exist. So basically there are two, so Ogden Outreach largely exists two days out of the week. It provides access to free counseling, life coaching, meals, social events, a safe space wherein LGBT youth can come and find love and friendship and so on, among many other things that Ogden Outreach does, like holding community panels and so on. But it doesn't yet have the resources to have, let's say, a shelter for these newly homeless youth. It just doesn't exist in the entire state. There is a youth drop-in center in Salt Lake where it's a daytime drop-in center where youth can come and get canned food, for example, or clothing. But still, at the end of the day, at night, you better find a safe place to sleep, hopefully, where you're not going to be assaulted. There's a zero shelters. For no you. shelters whatsoever. So what? For any homeless youth? For any homeless youth. And so... Because is, in Utah, there in, is not Utah, a single shelter for a homeless Not youth. one at all. And How can that be? How can we be so neglected? I think, okay, so personally, I think that there are two, two phenomena or three phenomena at play. The first is a reluctance to deal with the unsavory reality that there are children that are being kicked out of their homes in a very family-centered conservative state. I think the second one is... The idea that it is the family, supposedly, that is supposed to provide the safety network. And the third one is that where that fails, there is the the state should be able to come in with foster care, right? But what ends up happening here in Utah is that foster care families are reluctant to take in many. I don't know what the numbers are insofar as how many are LDS and so on, but are reluctant to take in children who are LGBT. And so that that social structure, safety support system, completely disappears and disintegrates if you're a gay child. So they don't have the access to the foster cares that the other children have simply because of the prejudice from the LDS foster homes. From the from the yeah from the host families or homes. So I have a question for you, Berta. In Utah, are gay people or lesbian people allowed to be foster parents, or is that? That is, that's a really good question. And I, I honestly don't know, but I, I would lean towards no, simply because there isn't even anti-discrimination ordinances in most counties and cities. You can still, in, the sta- in most of the state of Utah, you can still be legally fired for being gay. You can be denied housing and, and that sort of thing. So, so even if the gay community wanted to step forward to provide foster homes, it would be complicated in Utah for that because getting approval as a foster parent is almost impossible for a gay person. I, and I honestly... In I most of the country. I don't know specific Utah policy, but I'd like to, I'd like to find out. I think out. that that would be... And I, I, I can definitely, like, you know, you ask and then you can provide that as an annotation to the podcast later. I have a friend who is a part of the... Uh, one of the heads of the housing department in the state of Utah, so I'll ask her. But... Basically, again, there's there's no resources. There's even less resources for LGBT homeless youth than there are for homeless youth. And even for homeless youth in general, they are quite scant. There's approximately, estimates are, uh, around 1,000 homeless children. So approximately 420 of them are, are LGBT children, the vast majority of which come from LDS homes, right? So right. I, in the process of educating myself, you know, asked Marion, well, Okay, so what happens to these kids, you know, after they're newly homeless? And she said, well, well, if they survive, she prefaced it with that, which to me, you know, rattled me because it was like, what, what do you mean if they survive? My God, like what, what is happening? 
and this is where we come into just the violence, abuse, and exploitation that happens to young people who are thrown into the streets. And, and it's important also to note that some of these youth just leave because their homes become, again, abusive or antagonistic towards them, or they're being forced to participate in reparative therapy, which leads them to suicide ideation. Just really sad things. So either way, she says, the only things that we can do is just give them sleeping bags and tents and hope that they survive the winter. So basically, the only thing that exists right now, really, is for the Salt Lake Youth Drop-In, Daytime Drop-In Center, and for Ogden Outreach to do is give these children sleeping bags, tents, maybe some warm clothing and some foods that don't require access to cooking facility or amenities, and just hope that they survive. They live in, many of them have camps in the canyons, in the mountains. Some just live in the alleyways. And it's really a sad lot. If ever, if ever there was anyone who was robbed, beaten, and wounded, and left by the side of the road, and for whom the, you know, the righteous Pharisees are crossing on the other side of the street so that they don't have to be confronted with that unsavory reality of that person who has been wounded, in this, in this case, an invisible nation of children. It's these LGBT homeless youth and just homeless youth in general. And instead, the Good Samaritans that are stopping to help them are not, are not Mormons for the most part, though I, I certainly cannot categorically say that because, again, there are Mormon households that are progressive and supportive. And I just, I just did a panel, I participated in a panel where it's an LDS lady and every summer she takes in LGBT kids. And, you know, so I can't categorically state that, but for the most part, it is actually the United Unitarian Church and other faiths through interfaith efforts or um, through these individual nonprofit organizations that are stopping to actually try and help in some way. So what Marion and I are doing is we're in the process of co-establishing a program called Safe and Sound. What this program will do is when a, a newly homeless child comes to, let's say, Ogden Outreach, we'll find it's basically a homeless youth host home program. So uh, we're in the process of developing our best practices and vetting procedures. And so uh, just say, is Ogden Outreach specifically for lesbian, gay teens, or is it uh, just general homeless um, teens? In this particular instance, it's for LGBT youth, homeless youth because that's okay. who Ogden Outreach, the demographic that Ogden Outreach serves. Although certainly, of course, there's a broader need as well. Um, yeah, and is it just Ogden or Weber County? Or uh, no, 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 the... no. It's going to be a statewide initiative. Okay. So, Based in mm -hmm. Ogden. Yeah, so we have a development team of professionals that are helping us. They're uh, psychologists, social workers, um, pro bono lawyers, and so on. And always welcome volunteers as well in the process of what, well, to be part of our development team. We're writing grants and doing all kinds of things so that essentially we'll be able to have potential host homes uh, apply to be host families. And after being vetted on a variety of fronts, you know, if there's a homeless child with, we want to have like a full-time social worker staff that can basically be caseworkers and place these children, do follow-ups, make sure that they're receiving the help and resources they need. As you say, there can be a great deal of trauma associated with suddenly losing, you know, everything that you've known. 
So whether it's access to um, therapy, help with schoolwork or whatever it is to help these children be able to move forward in a healthy way, in a loving environment, in a loving and affirming environment. And with the kind of like personalized attention that a family can provide, you know, and we're looking at it wherever possible as a short-term host program that would be anywhere from six months to two years, depending uh, on the age of the child and then helping that child with integration into the adult world or where possible and appropriate with the goal of reunification by educating the family of origin, by having interactions, mediated interactions with the host home and so on. And so, you know, hopefully in that respect, creating healing and reconciliation and helping parents to come to understand that they really can love, support, and embrace their child. But if that isn't possible, making sure that they have not just a roof over their head, but an extensive support system, whether it's of, you know, school counselors, therapists, um, peer tutors, and anything else so that they can continue to navigate the path of who they are in a, in a place and in a setting that is uh, sustainable and life-affirming and loving. And uh, yeah, I, I feel deeply passionate about it. The need is there, and so is the will. As we have mentioned the program, people are enthusiastic, um, have already begun to volunteer and make donations and so on. And I know that there's going to be great power and change. We also want to eventually launch a, me- a media campaign, you know, saying yeah. this is this is what's happening and what you should be aware is happening in the state. And will happen to your child, you know, if you throw them out of your home. Because I don't, I don't think the vast majority of parents really know and understand what the terrors and horrors of homelessness for a young person look like, and what they're throwing them into, as it were, you know. And furthermore, these are the resources that are available if you need help as a family navigating this, and so on and so forth. You know, my goal eventually would be for for safe and sound within however many years to become obsolete. And what I mean by that is that while the problem of youth homelessness, I think, can never be fully eradicated, that the level of hopefully of awareness, of education, and of acceptance, and and resources available. And a willingness of society to take on the problem. To take on the problem precisely will be such that, you know, it will no longer be necessary. But the, the need is so urgent, literally just in the, the very simple term of, of saving lives, to say nothing of the material life of a person, to say nothing of saving their, the per, their personhood of these young people, their spirit, their heart, their well-being, that I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that this program get, succeeds, you know, and gets off the ground yeah. as soon as possible. And... And I invite any who desire to provide support, whether it is if you want to volunteer to become a host home or simply would like to make a donation or become part of our development team, just go to ogdenoutreach.org. Ogden is spelled O-G-D-E-N, so ogdenoutreach.org. There's a donation button there, and you can simply, in the process of your donation, just annotate safe and sound or indicate that it's for safe and sound. Because Ogden Outreach is an umbrella for a multiplicity of initiatives and programs. Please, by all means, you know, contact us or make a donation. And 
I have a great deal of faith that together we'll be able to make a difference. Our long-term goal eventually is to build uh, emergency sh- shelter for newly homeless kids so that in that in-between time, you know, b- between placement. Yeah, the hardest time for them. Though. Mm-hmm, the hardest time for them. There is a structure and a pl- in place and a safe location where they can be um, while we find a home for them, you know. And so all of these things are going to require a great many resources, and we're doing what we can in terms of grant writing and so forth. But, you know, I think our greatest support will come from probably individual donations and so on. And so I encourage you to do so if you are able to. Um, Yeah, and I really hope that this campaign that the church has started with our website will include... Um, some encouragement for people to really care more for the the troubled youth. Absolutely. Um, an encouragement to the members, and I don't know if that'll come from the church, but I really hope it does. I, I do, but it, you know, as long as it may or may not come from the organizational institutional church, you and I don't have to wait for that to happen in order to begin to be the catalyst for that yeah. change within our own families, within our wards. And just within our communities at large, and yeah. there's a great—it's deeply empowering, I think, for as an at least for me as an LGBT person to know that I'm doing something to leave the world a little bit better for the LGBT young people that will come after me, and to minimize the disproportionately high rates not just of homelessness but of suicide among LGBT youth within the LDS faith, within our Mormon theology. There's an assertion that the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. One of uh, our luminaries within our history said the worth of one soul is worth worlds, or that one, one soul is worth worlds. If that is the case, then we are losing a constellation of beautiful, young, bright people who, give a, who lose hope long before their time. And I think that it behooves us as disciples of Christ to do better and so far as how we treat our LGBT brothers and sisters, but in particular, the kind of support and love that we provide for our young people. The fact that so many of our young homeless youth in the state of Utah come from LDS homes, to me, is not only an atrocity, but is a direct contradiction of what we have been taught insofar as what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And I know that it it cannot possibly be easy because of where we are uh, as a church, perhaps to know and to understand how to be fully supportive and affirming of an LGBT child. So I would challenge LDS parents or loved ones or, fr- or friends of LGBT persons and particularly youth to take time to educate yourself about what that experience might be like from a variety of sources and do everything that you can to love and support them. And it is my hope that through Safe and Sound, we will be able to fill in that, that terrible gap through which too many young people have fallen and that we will be able to provide loving, affirming homes for them and that they will be able to go on to successful lives and uh, to adopt a life-affirming path, as it were. Um, that's about what I have to say about that. I don't know if yeah. there's... You know, the tradition of Mormon stories is to let you bear your testimony at the end, as it may be. And I'm not sure you didn't just do it, but 
tell me, do you have more that you want to add about your overall, you know, final comments, sort of your final testimony about about your religion, let's say, and their its relationship to your life passions and your goals here that you're trying to change the world and you're trying to change the community. Um, is there more you want to say to sort of sum it up? And Sure. Um, so I'm really grateful because the political history of my family, while it was not an easy one or an easy experience for us, prepared me for the work of advocacy. But the gift of my sexuality, including all of the suffering that it meant, um, has prepared me to have a degree of empathy and love and understanding for those who also walk through the valley of the shadow or have done that I otherwise wouldn't have had. And I consider it a gift not only for that reason, but because it allows me to view the world through a different lens, one that questions some of what I consider the destructive assertions of heteronormativity. And that has also allowed me to develop a relationship with the divine that I perhaps would not have done had I not needed to in order to simply survive. And I'm really grateful for that. I feel that God, in, what, in whatever way you may def- we may define that, and that will change from person to person, is more liberal in his views, more all-encompassing in his love than any of us can understand, and that there is a greater variety of roles and in within the structure of the universe, we can say his and her or her kingdom. And that he rejoices in the diversity of his creations and that we ought to do the same. And I'm really grateful for everything that my faith tradition has endowed me with, as well as the things which my heart and my experiences with the divine have given me and helped me understand about just what is possible insofar as having a happy, fulfilling, productive, and hopefully ethical life. And I will leave these things with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen, who is the template of everything that I desire to become. Amen, and thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for this inspiring story and there's so many important things and so many issues that it it really touched on that I'm really hoping that a lot of people will be able to hear this and I really hope that it can bring more attention to the problems a lot of problems but especially the one your is your current passion of the lesbian and gay youth so Berta I really congratulate you on the amazing road you've traveled and where you've come and I really hope that you can I know we're going to hear more about you in the coming years, so um, we'll probably have to do more podcasts just to (laughs) hear about the amazing things you're going to do in the next coming years. Really, really thank you. That's incredibly kind. I think I would probably say the same about you, Um, but that's really generous and kind, and thank you. Well, thank you very much. As promised, I'm adding this addendum to the podcast in order to clarify the policy of Utah towards gay and lesbians serving as foster parents. What I learned is that Utah legally forbids any couple to serve as foster parents unless they are legally married. 
This excludes some heterosexual couples, but it inherently excludes all homosexual couples. In other words, the most stable households of gay and lesbians are automatically excluded. Now, presumably, that still allows single gays and lesbians to serve as foster parents. However, they've always been giving very low priority in all foster care assignments. And Berta has clarified that there is actually now an administrative policy against allowing any gays and lesbians any kind of foster care responsibilities, whether or not they're in couples or single. So basically, they are all excluded. And this leaves gay and lesbians powerless to do any kind of intervention for this homeless lesbian gay teen problem. I really hope that our straight listeners realize that due to the powerlessness of the gay community in this situation, that it's really up to our straight allies to step forward and really do something to help the situation with these kids. First of all, we need homes. They need homes. The agencies helping them need money. And we need to have a legislative battle that will change the policy so that at least these kids could be placed with gay and lesbian foster parents instead of being on the street. That would be the most loving response to this situation. Presently, all I can say is that the current situation is hateful because it guarantees the homeless kids will stay in the streets, meanwhile having a specific discrimination against all gay and lesbian residents of Utah. So I really hope people will hear a call to action on this particular issue that's so current, so urgent, with 450 homeless gay and lesbian teenagers at this point of time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Gay Mormon Stories. To discuss this episode with others, please check us out at gaymormonstories.org. If you want to see this podcast continue, please consider making a monthly donation, again, at gaymormonstories.org. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer Mormons. Music for this podcast was graciously donated by Clayton Pixton. Check him out at claytonpixton.com.
My boy. 